We who are about to die salute you. Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris and Chris with uh, episode 20 of Moratory Mondays here at the Chris and Reggie channel. Find this program, hopefully, every week. Uh, we're going to do our best to uh, to keep it weekly going on here. But uh, we do have a very, very, very bittersweet episode today. Um, this is uh, this is like, you could say this is the final issue of Strike Force Moratory in a way. You, you think uh, that's uh, that's fair to say? I think that we could absolutely say this because, man, if you were writing a TV show, if you were doing a script, this would be your season finale. This would be your last episode, and you would go away happy and high five in your friend. So it's true. If if, if we could true. call this, if we could like forward this to like issue or like episode thirty-two, we could put this like as the last episode, and I think that would be a good cap to Moratory Mondays. But sadly, yeah. we're only at issue twenty, so we got uh, twelve more issues of uh, fun and frillic. And finicky to go here, so. Plus five prestige format electric undertoes. <laughs> oh, that's a special, Chris. That that's going to come a... later. Woohoo! <laughs> that is very, very special, and, and special <laughs> is a good way to put it. Uh, because I can't think of a, uh, an, uh, I can't think of anything positive to say about it. It has been a long time since I've looked at it, though. Uh, but today we have the final issue for Brent Anderson and Peter B. Gillis. It is a I mean, we'll put the cart before the horse here. It's a it's a beautiful issue. It's a wonderful issue, uh, cover to cover. It's it's a it's yep. a fantastic read, and it it only makes the pain <laughs> hurt even more uh, because <laughs> we know what's about to come. And uh, uh, for folks who haven't followed Strike Force Moratory and uh, have heard us over the course of the past uh, twenty episodes, you know, near thirty hours of discussion, just gush about this book uh oof uh you you probably aren't ready for what's gonna come i i don't think we're ready for what's to come and we've been bracing for it for a very long time now but uh it's like it's like driving that sports car that you paid a lot of money for and that you love and you you cherish and everybody who looks at it thinks it's fantastic and then you drive it off a cliff that's what's about to happen (laughs) it's true it's true uh but before we get into the actual issue, uh, we want to pop right over to our uh, our new intro segment. Or our, you know, it's not a, not completely new, but it is newer than the old recruit report. But uh, this is Pitch Force Moratory, and uh, we're going to be looking at Strike Force Moratory as a daytime soap opera. So you want to uh, kick oh. us off into the uh, into the world of uh, of Salem or St. Charles or, or whichever hospital the <laughs> Well, this one, this this one, Chris, let me start here in the cutthroat world of Padaya City, the corporate world of wellness and beauty aids. Young corporate business titans play a game of corporate snakes and ladders to achieve fame and fortune. 
Neon Life, and Black and Black Watch Industries are the top of the food chain as the war for the business world erupts. Many never last a year in this cruel, competitive landscape. But as some cling to their jobs, others are there to annihilate the competition and stake their claim to the corporate brass ring. Welcome to Strike Force Moratory, the daytime soap edition. Like sands through the hourglass. Huh? <laughs> So are the days of our lives in one year. <laughs> yes. So is the year of our life. Yes. Yes. So why don't you start out, Chris, and tell us who uh, who's our who's our first cast member? So we'll go through the cast first, and then we're sure. we're actually going to script just a, a brief overview of the first six episodes of this bad boy. So we'll start with the cast. Mm-hmm. Now, now, Neon Life is the is one of the companies here in Padilla City. Uh, Kimo Talima, renowned cosmetic scientist. He spearheaded Neon Life product development. Uh, Tolima has a secret, as he knows his cosmetics that sell in the millions might just have different but very serious side effects for their employees as well as their customer base. Mm, that sounds familiar. Watch out for that lip gloss, folks. But anyway, yes, then we don't, have... don't put it on there. Yeah. <laughs> then we have Beth Louise Neon. She's the head of Neon Life and a multinational wellness and plant-based product. We got to be current people. Manufacturer. Mm. She's a steadfast, business-savvy spokeswoman for her brand and a megastar in the media and all their commercials. Mm-hmm. We got Harold Viking. Uh, he is a wide-eyed intern, popular with the ladies as well as with the media. He has a proven marketing background, and he's studied up on all the Black Watch cosmetics, the, you know, the esteemed competition to Neon Life. He's willing to do, well, he's willing to do anything in order to move up the corporate ladder, and that includes sleeping his way there, much to the dismay of his superiors. <laughs> Speaking of doing anything, we move to Lorna Lee Rayburn, who's Harold's love interest, or the love interest to Harold. She's a rebellious and fiery human resources manager with a vast sales background and the ability to, get this, fire people. There mm, you go. That, that's a very <laughs> good power to have. Yeah. yeah. We got Louis Arminetti. He's a longtime associate known for his revolutionary light therapy product line that has uh, been pushed down the food chain of the company. And uh, he's starting to worry about the uh, how long he's going to how long he has for this world here. He, he's not sure he's going to be employed much longer. Uh, he's a very paranoid person and he constantly reminds everyone uh, how the new people that come in are only there to steal their jobs. He secretly sells trade secrets to the rival company in return for the age-defying serum formulas that are worth billions of dollars. Hmm. We move on then to product analyst Jaylene Anderson, who uncovers horrific secrets about the competition's age-defying products. She's a respected scientist who has staunch morals and puts that in direct contrast to the morally bankrupt business world. Mm-hmm. Finally, we have Aileen Blackthorne. She's the self-conscious daughter of Victor Blackthorne, uh, who sold the wellness business to Beth Neon in a multi-billion dollar buyout. And uh, she rests as the sole shareholder and the constant, quote, thorn in Beth's company. Mm-hmm. She's in love with an associate of the competition. Dun, dun, dun. Then we have three new people. We're trying to mm-hmm. break their way into the business. Now they're under they're under contractors and distribution teams. We start with Pilar Lasso. The sultry young affiliate has a passion for life and sales. Now Pilar and her team provide key ingredients 
and supplies to the big two conglomerates. So they, you know, they're playing the field. Uh, she has a very convincing manner about her and has the ability to control the hearts and minds of salivating suitors who chase her. Now, Pilar has a secret passion for the occult and is not convinced that the, comp- the competitive that this competition and often corrupt lifestyle is for her at all. Mm-hmm. She's like something out of Passions, if you remember that show. Oh, that was nice. Little Timmy. Oh, that was a Oh, boy. <laughs> uh, William DeGucci, a brilliant accessories designer who peddles his wares to the big two agencies. DeGucci bags and accessories are all the rage in Padilla City. His relationship with Pilar keeps him grounded and uh, working almost exclusively with Neon Life. And uh, I gotta wonder... Are some of these bags of uh, Deguchi's, are they douchebags? <laughs> well done, sir. Well played. <laughs> Everybody's got to have a Deguchi bag for Christmas. <laughs> maybe some of those rip-off bags you see at the flea markets in Florida. Sure. Maybe they're, maybe they're Deguchi bags. I don't know. I don't remember Reeboks having a C in it. <laughs> I love it. Okay, we have Ruth Masterakis. She's the spokesman for a perfume line. Now, Ruth's scents are the most highly sought-after fragrances, but most folks don't know that Ruth uses her fragrances as well for lethal purposes. Now, she's a born leader who hates incompetence and just wants to rise to the top. Mm-hmm. Let's hop across the street and meet Black Watch Industries here. We got the uh, financial officer, Dominica Bra- Brava. Uh, Dominica Brava, yes. <laughs> she's the uh, the CFO of the competition, and uh, she's a strong media presence and spokeswoman who will stop at nothing to put Neon Life out of business. She's a fearless brute in the boardroom who lets everyone know where the muscle and power lies. Mm-hmm. Then we move into Walter Fezziuglu. He's a successful hedge fund <laughs> advisor turned corporate <laughs> turned corporate bean counter. But it's all about the bottom line for Fez in love and of life. And you know what? And his callous ways often lead to broken hearts as he cuts as he cuts people and employees out of his life. He's also Brava's right hand man and potential love interest. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Akia Bondi, she silences her critics by using her legal background in order to ensure that anything that Black Watch Industries does is, you know, they're the first ones to the dance for product. Uh, she's a staunch legal advisor who meets the competition. Mm-hmm. Then we have good old wild card himself, Mr. John Cronella, who is the multinational fashion plate. You know, this haberdasher's designs are unparalleled, but this wild card knows there's only one room for a diner for a designer in Padilla City. You know, he has an unhealthy obsession with Will DeGucci <laughs> and will stop at nothing to have his wild card brand become the definitive fashion and accessory line. Cronella as a secret distributor and a secret cost on Deguchi as well. That might be the one thing that uh, Moratori has been missing: a, a wild card and uh, and Deguchi romance. <laughs> I think so too. <laughs> I, I don't think it's a bad thing. I think this would uh, this would play well on TV and controversy back then. For sure, eighty-eight. For sure, for sure, yeah. Now we hop into the first episode here. We got six of them. We're gonna we're gonna fill you in on. 
This one is called The Feud. Uh, it's Nyon versus Blackwatch. Now, the central figure of this episode is Harold Viking. Uh, he's fresh from a successful job interview, and his uh, marketing company will wind up getting the contract in order to market the ultra-lucrative Neon Life brand. He has a board meeting with head honcho Beth Neon and her advisors. Uh, he meets with the board and is introduced to the full team, who look at him like, uh, like he's something of an outsider. A call comes through during the meeting that the new Neon Life prototype line has been leaked and that the competition has released their product as a result, and stocks have taken a tremendous hit. Everyone starts to panic. Harold meets Lorna outside the meeting, and she gives him uh, um, some not-so-subtle hints on uh, what he may (laughs) do in order to help. Uh, They have quick sex in an office, but they are both walked in on by her boyfriend, Robert Marathon. Dun, dun, dun. Mm. The fellas come to blows while Lorna, now insanely upset, reprimands them both and storms off, as do the two men. The first episode ends when Aileen finds Lorna dead in a supply closet. Wait a second. Someone dies right away. Crazy. Uh oh. <laughs> episode two Damage Control. Now, the news of Lorna Rayburn's death, it's hit the media. And, of course, Beth Neon, with Harold helps, decides she's going to stage some damage control tactics and save the company's face. Now, Louis Arminetti warns Beth Neon not to trust young Harold and places doubt in her mind that Harold may have been involved with Lorna's death, but not a, but does not address it. As you know, Harold single-handedly marketed their stolen product and the company shares and are again on the rise. You know, he saved the company again. So, you know, Harold becomes the star employee. Uh, Jaylene questions Robert on Lorna's murder and gets nowhere. Now we meet up with Dominica Brava in the black watch headquarters as Bandy is telling her how to proceed legally with the patent pending on the new mystery product that mysteriously came their way. Now in a fire tower, we see Will the Gucci and Pilar. They're discussing Rayburn's demise as well and the impact of their business off to the side. And we also meet Ruth. Now Ruth is by herself, and this is how the episode wraps up. And we're wondering, you know, the big mystery behind Lorna's death. We see Ruth sitting at her desk, and she just, you know, casually sprays her desk plant with some perfume. And it suddenly wilts and dies as she smiles, looking at the dead plant. Hmm. Mm. Episode 3, What's Up with Pilar? Uh, Now, Pilar meets with Jaylene Anderson at Neon Life to discuss uh, new potential ingredient lines for their upcoming launch party. And this has just become the talk of the town. Now, Jaylene dismisses Pilar's ingredients as being potentially harmful, and uh, this makes Pilar a bit upset. Jaylene suddenly becomes ill, and she's removed from work. Pilar is escorted out of the building and meets with Louie, who warns her that her place in the company is in jeopardy, and she may not make she may not make uh, the year-end launch party. We jump elsewhere, where Walter Fez is speaking with someone on the phone, dictating the plans for Neon Life's big reveal, once again spoiling their competitive advantage. Fez smiles as he places the information in from uh, Dominica, who grins with pride. Harold meets with Beth following a victory party, which celebrates their successful damage control after Lorna's undue passing. Uh, now, the show ends with Harold kissing Beth. Finally. <laughs> I, I mean, we've been waiting for that. We, yes. we, the whole the whole time Harold and Beth were in the book together, we were waiting for that to happen. It had the closest to happen. we got was a, was a choking match. Um, <laughs> now, 
Before we go off the air, though, we flash over to Pilar, who is in a dark room surrounded by candles, and she's in the middle of doing some chants. And uh, we see some pictures and a like a voodoo doll of Jaylene Anderson burning. Mm, wait a second here. Let's roll into episode four. Never trust a picture. So Aileen reviews the CCTV footage with Robert Marathon of the night that Lorna died. They see that Lorna actually leaves the room, followed by Harold, who they suspect had actually killed her. But instead, Harold ends up in Beth Neon's office. And instead, they see a large figure behind a door pull Lorna out of view to their sudden shock. Aileen calls her father about this outrageous activity going on in his former company. And the voice on the phone says he's on his way. He's not going to put up with this. Meanwhile, Beth and Harold appoint Will DeGucci as their new spokesman for the upcoming launch party as they make arrangements to showcase the new accessories with the brand launch, ensuring a massive success. Now at Blackwatch headquarters, John Cronello walks in on Walter Fez, and he's on the phone call, and he hears the he hears a spy revealing the Neon Life Company's plans at the upcoming Super Show. Just as Wildcard turns and tries to tiptoe away, he runs into a familiar face off-camera who he clearly recognizes and is terrified of. Mm-hmm. Episode 5, our penultimate episode, is called Super Train. Dominica, how do we say that? Dominica? Dominica, I think so. Dominica. <laughs> I, I, don't think, I don't think I've ever said it the same way twice. Dominica. Dominica. She waits on a platform as a large silver streak tears by and makes a sudden stop. In front of her is the multi-million dollar Super Train. Now, the doors open to reveal new Black Tower investor, Yuri Poor... Commander yes. Yuri. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Commander, that's right. Who greets her with a hug, inviting her and her team into the train as they look on in just absolute awe. Brava hands Yuri the company's new plans in order to, you know, ruin launch night for Neon Life. Meanwhile, Harold and a team are uh, setting up their launch gala as uh, Beth Neon is elsewhere hyping the event to the media. Aileen interrupts Harold. Uh, she chastises him for uh, Lorna and the whole corporate you know, suck hole that he's uh, become. Uh, they both begin to argue loudly. Beth receives word from Kimo Talima that Jaylene is somehow deathly ill in the hospital and uh, worries that her work as an analyst has made her ill as a chemical-like mask has enveloped her face unlike anything doctors have ever seen and it'll probably look like it's the company's fault for testing risky products that they knew might be harmful but were cheap to produce Uh Mm -hmm. worried beth rushes to find harold to help her uh, you know maybe get back into the spin zone and uh get ahead of the media fire and uh, she opens the door to find harold and aileen in the throes of passion and she watches stunned. Oh, snap, Harold. Is, is there what anyone that is there anyone that Harold won't bang? <laughs> he did not get the message of do not put your pen in the company ink. It's My true. Goodness. <laughs> we we leave off with our final episode, episode six, the blood red carpet. Now it's the oh. night of the reveal gala, and Beth Neon is backstage peering out to the giant crowd awaiting the launch of Neon Life's new cosmetics and accessories line. Uh, you know, social media and Hollywood star Greg Mattingly actually emceeing the event, and he's putting over the company to the roaring approval of the audience. Now, Beth, of course, she's begrudgingly standing near a silent and very embarrassed Harold Viking, whom she just caught 
with Aileen Blackthorne backstage in the throes of passion, of course. Now, mm-hmm. Aileen, who sits front row with her father, uh, is in the is is in the audience, and she glares at him as she heads out on stage. Well, these two really don't like each other, Chris. I guarantee you. You know, mm-hmm. in the audience as well, we see members of the Black Watch Industries to oversee the events. They're not gonna, gonna let their competition away, you know, without seeing what's up. You know what I'm saying? They got their own invite. How did they get tickets? Who knows? Uh, <laughs> meanwhile. Outside of the arena, Robert is overseeing security detail as he suddenly hears a disturbance behind the arena. He walks around to find out what's happening. Now, as the event streams live over the Internet, there is a massive explosion on one side of the arena. And a small army of masked men take over the building and the stage. And they walk up on stage to Beth Neon Shock. Uh, Beth Neon Shock. And uh, she is shot in cold blood in front of a live audience over the Internet. Dead, dead, dead. The mask, the main masked man gets in front of the camera and says, this party is officially over. This gala and the people are now hostages of the horde. The mm, end. Mm. There you go. Pitch for Moratori. I think uh, we, we got to like pitch this to a uh, Netflix or something. I think we can get this in. <laughs> we got to. We got to check with uh, with uh, Mr. Gillis and see if we can uh, get him to co-sign. <laughs> and we can get this on uh, some sort of streaming service here. I, it, it's it's just I, I love um, how the, some of these characters that weren't around for very long at all uh, have uh, remained with us and have like sort of um, defined this book. I mean, because Harold wasn't around very much, but uh, he's he's always the star in our eyes. Oh, absolutely. He's like, He's always, you know, the main character, the book that he hasn't been in for, geez, like 14 issues now, 15 issues. It's And, and, and let's and let's be fair. Uh, Peter Gillis and Brent Anderson never lets us forget them either. You know what I mean? We That's always true. get reminders. We get a big reminder of Harold in this issue. We and sure we do. see Lorna. We see the whole cast in this one. And uh, man, it was refreshing and it was great to see our, my team back again. Anyway, I mm-hmm. guarantee. And I'm sure it's your team as well, man. That first generation of Moratori are amazing. Indeed. So let's hop right on in. This is Strike Force Moratori number 20, has a July 1988 cover date. The story is called Dot 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 Salute You. Cool. I, I, you know what? <laughs> that, that even when I even saw the word "salute you," it it hit me like a ton of bricks. I got to be honest with you, because I knew that this was a last hurrah for not only these guys but for our characters that we just went through 20 issues with, man. It's true, and uh, I mean, we all know the tagline for this book: "We who are about to die," and the title is "Dot Dot Dot Salute You." So it's uh, it's very poignant. It's uh it, it, it's it, and it's it's going to be a wonderful issue. Um. Now the writer for the last time, Peter B. Gillis. Pencils for the last time, Brent Anderson. Oh Ink. no, Brent! No, don't say it ain't so. I know it's painful. The rest of the team, I don't know if it's their last time or not, but uh, inks Scott Williams, letters Phil Felix, colors Max Scheel, edits Carl Potts, chief Tom DeFalco. Uh, yeah. Cover price one dollar USD, one twenty-five Canadian, fifty p UK. Um, so they they lost their little uh, discount in the UK. Uh, we dipped down <laughs> to forty that. for whatever. Yeah, so we're back up to fifty. Damn it. And. Uh, this bugger went on sale on March 1st, 1988, according to Mike's Amazing World. Um, now, this is something that we left very little notes on in our doc here, because uh, 
we wanted to do this spontaneously. Uh, this cover um, really needs to be seen to be believed. It is uh, it it is everything you'd ever want about from a Strike Force Moratory cover. It is wonderful, and it's uh, I especially have been pretty critical of the last several covers. Uh, this one just totally knocks it out of the park. Here you have a what, what do you think about this uh, this wonderful cover? Oh man, this is when you when you think about that this is going to be the last issue, it almost breaks your heart because you get to yeah. see the entire cast that you just went 20 issues with. They're in black and white. It is a like a very very striking image. This is a t-shirt, man. I'm telling you right now, it is absolutely yeah. without question the best Strike Force Moratory cover of the entire series. Of the entire uh, run. Yeah. Just top shelf and you can tell just with the detail on the cover alone that Brent Anderson is like throwing it all at the wall in this one, because it's a beautiful, beautiful image, very striking, very haunting. And I love every single piece of it. Yeah. To, to describe what it is here. If you remember early on, there was like a, uh, like sort of like the, the Vietnam war memorial with the names etched in granite, you know, of, of the casualties, there was one of those for the Strike Force members here, where all the names were, you know, all the names of the the folks who passed were like etched into granite, and the background of this is all of their names, and this goes back to the Black Watch. This is all the characters that we've lost, and their names here are in very, you know, bold type, just as though they were etched into this monument um, or the memorial. In the foreground, in pink is ever i mean wild cards on the cover we, <laughs> yes he, sir he he was in like like what six pages of this book and he is on the cover because he's part of this story it's, you know what uh, one thing about that is that this issue really tells the tale of why wild wild card you know is, was yeah. so short-lived so you know it serves a purpose and I'm, i was glad he was on the cover man it's oh awesome. absolutely he, he definitely belongs here it's uh it is a very, very nice cover here, and it's just, you know, I'm looking at the middle of it right here. It's it's our team right there, the middle of the book, yep. the middle of this cover here. You got you know, Louis, Robert. It's it, it's it's a wonderful cover, and uh, and it's a uh, oh boy, it's bittersweet, isn't it? It's really, really, uh, it, it touches you, man. If you if you're invested in this series. And if you actually read it, you you'd absolutely would be, as far as I'm concerned. But uh, man, it's really really striking. It's like it's like a monument, a memento. It's uh, yeah, it's very definitive, and it looks like a last issue. What a last issue should be is what this what this front cover is, and I guarantee you, seek it out. Hundred percent. Strike Force Moratory issue twenty. Mm-hmm. You literally got to see this cover. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Now, once we open the cover, it's, we get some more beauty here. It's all Brent Anderson, of course. Now, the story opens with uh, some painfully poetic narration. Yes, okay? uh, that's um, putting it lightly. <laughs> and uh, the <laughs> handing over of a certain audio recording device. We meet a... The VCOM. Uh, VV, it was a, a one V or two Vs. Uh, yeah, I think it was the VVCOM. Yeah, now we meet a Padilla errand boy man <laughs> who is uh, delivering <laughs> that audio recording device this is of course harold everson's recorder to commander yuri now yuri he's like what do you want me to do with this i I, i've never met harold and uh, nobody on my team has ever you know worked with harold i mean the the oldest members of his team are 
or Pilar, you know, because, yep. uh, no, not Pilar, uh, Ruth, because Pilar's passed and uh, Deguchi is brain dead. So all we have left is Ruth and she never met Harold. You know, she she met the team as they were coming back from the mission Harold died during. Exactly. So, yeah, so Yuri has like no connectivity to to Harold. Um, the Padilla fig is, uh, you know, Harold talked a lot. There might be confidential information on this device. So you'd better listen to it, you know, just in case. And uh, we're just going to say right here, Harold's recorded narration will frame basically this entire issue and it is uh, a wonderful literary device especially considering that this is the creative team swan song because it ties everything up beautifully oh man so if you're a fan of this issue you know that once uh once harold hit moratory hq for the training session and all that stuff he used avivacom all the time to record yeah. his all, all his exploits so from you know issue one right on down through, he dictated because he worked for the what was it called the web? What was it? Um, oh boy, the net, uh, the local the net. net, the local net. He worked for the local net as a reporter, so he always reported everything that he saw. But he kept that as his own little private journal, and he kept it throughout the entire process. So just to see this come back, it brings everything from the first issues back full circle. I mean. Mm-hmm. Do you think that if you're looking at this, that this was like a master plan? Do you think this was planned from the start to have this as the start and end piece to this, you know, to I, these 20 issues? I wonder, because, I, you know, it like you mentioned earlier, this could be the final issue. I mean, this is something that we would have loved to have read as the final issue. I wonder if this was just always Peter and Brent's plan for the final issue. And it's like, hey, we're leaving the book. Yeah, Let, we're you know, <laughs> both barrels do it. You know, this is how we're we getting were that end with it. all the good stuff, too. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So Love maybe it. this was always their end game because it I mean, it's too good to be an accident. You know, this is and from what we've what we've read of uh, of Peter and Brent's work, I, I mean, everything is is very, very uh, uh, curated and planned. I, I mean, it doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of accident <laughs> in what they do. <laughs> but uh yuri he gets the the tape recorder he buckles down to listen and as he's listening he flips on a monitor and he watches the the strike force members training with each other and uh you might think that this is one of those powers in tandem exercises but it's not uh this is a little bit more interesting than that um and a little bit weirder than that as well um <laughs> to say the least yeah this is odd uh now this is a scene where we have six members of the moratory and they're paired off with each other basically to show that they can that you know they're they're kind of one to one they can cancel each other's powers out in certain situations um and it's uh it's also strangely erotic or romantic yep I, I mean, let, it's let's. It's about let's, time, by the way. Right. Yeah. Now let's talk about the first one here. Toxin and Hardcase. They're wrestling. Okay. <laughs> and uh, now they promise not to use any of their moratory powers. Uh, the only thing they were allowed to use was their hover boots or whatever in the fight. Um, we have Hardcast Hardcase uh, saying to Toxin, "You know what? You go ahead and use your toxic powers because when I harden my skin, your powers can't seep in anyway." Right. So Which he can actually counteract. Yeah, it's a very good use of his powers. Now, as he is straddling her, she mentions the many possibilities that his, quote, hardening powers 
might lend too. <laughs> and I had to check the cover again to make sure the code was on it. And yes, yes, the Comics Code Authority did approve this. Well, just think about this, Chris. I mean, the entire, you know, the entire character of Hardcase has been built for this moment right here. I guarantee yes. you, his whole powers. <laughs> Or we're always going to be defined as this one punchline that he could yep. make himself super hard at the right times in the right yeah. places. So yeah, he is a walking boner joke. Yeah. <laughs> I do yeah. like the fact though that you know he can actually neutralize Toxin's power but make himself hard though. I think that Absolutely. was that was well done. Pretty uh, pretty unique use of his power there. So hats off. Mm-hmm. Now we have Silencer and Backhand. They're paired off, and Silencer silences Foe Harold. Um, and, and they, they make these like cutesy remarks at each other. It's very, it's very weird. Um, Brava and Sheer, they do some of that old, uh, like pro wrestling test of strength. You know, they both put their <laughs> hands up and they, they interlock fingers and they push. Um, now you don't get to see much of that anymore. We don't, we don't. Yeah. Like we're the old test of strength, the old hand up and the then the good guy look at the audience to make sure it's like, should I do it? Should I do it? Yeah. And uh, it, Sheer doesn't doesn't give her a kick to the midsection. So they actually do the test of strength. And uh, during this, as they're, you know, pressing on each other, Sheer accuses Brava of having a romantic feelings for hard case. And they all want a piece of the hard man. I guess so. And I, I mean, this feels like so, I don't know. I, I, I like I wonder if this was stuff that was supposed to be like fomented a little bit or. It just feels very out of nowhere. I mean, it's it feels human and natural that these people who are in these very, very unique situations would gravitate to e- toward each other as um, romantic companions, but we haven't seen any of that yet. Well, just think about it. I mean, this group has been cut down significantly. So, yeah. I mean, when you're looking at your, you know, your sexual prospects, we'll say, you know, they're getting pretty slim here. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so are their time on earth so when you look at hey there's not many people left to bang with the uh with your math equation of how long i got to let to live you know what i mean it's time to get these frustrations out so you know mm-hmm. uh, you got to get we get while you can while the going is good you know what i'm saying but uh why hard case of all people you know why is everybody interested in this guy you know outside of the obvious you know what i mean because he is a he's a very rigid west point graduate right Mm. now (laughs) yes erection um (laughs) now the training session is cut short by the padilla alarm turns out there's something going down in moscow now we out here in moscow we learn that a former hordian hostage named alexander kirilenko just blew up outside of saint basil's cathedral which killed many people Hmm. now during the news report the gentle inquirer butts in somehow. He takes over the airwaves like he's Max Hedrum or something. And uh, he takes credit. He's like, yeah, we did it. And uh, guess what? There's going to be more to come. And uh, <laughs> this is actually, you know, we, we talked about how the Horde were kind of kind of neutered under the under old Thunder Crush. You know, they were, yep. they, they were getting kind of soft. Uh, the gentle inquirer. He doesn't screw around, um, and this is a very, very smart thing for them to do because right now he's saying, you know, we put bombs in bellies, so uh, it might be your mom, it might be your friend, it might be the person delivering your mail, it could be, uh, it could be the person at the at the deli. So humans are going to start to fear one another, and uh, oh, it's genius. 
isn't it? I mean, that is just like because the humans ha- they have been clinging to one another as support against the horde, and now it's like, well, can't trust your neighbor anymore. They might blow you up, and uh, just a very a wicked plan for the horde and uh especially with the ability to butt in on news reports and make sure everyone in the world knows that this is a possibility really did stuff. that come from by the way that that's another thing about the horde so now they have the technology to interfere with television transmissions as well true true to, to me to me you talked about you know when the horde first arrived i mean they were as basic and rudimentary as you can you know some mm-hmm. of the stuff that were talked about you know they stole ships you know they didn't have their own technology everything they got was basically you know raped and plundered Luke. you know what i mean yeah. so it seems you know seems like uh the inquirer has uh, some you know he's got some he's, stroke under his belt here he's really really figuring stuff out here for sure now, it's, uh, it's funny here because we talked about Harold's narration here, and it's going to be very um, very poignant and apropos throughout this story here because we return to his narration, and he compares the, to the, the moratory process to having a bomb in your belly, you know, ah. a bomb that's ticking. And because uh, it's Harold, it is very purple, but it, it's very well done um, – where he's talking about having a bomb in your chest, but you, what, what does he say? He's like, you mistake the ticks for heartbeats or something like that. Yep, exactly. Yeah, very, very nice. Very, very, <laughs> what, what a wonderful way with words uh, Gillis has. This here. is crazy. Isn't it? Now, uh, we pop back in on the Gentle Inquirer, and he is busy fondling a detonation device. Um, <laughs> his tent mate questions the plan here. He's like, you sure we want to do this? Because, uh. You know, the Earthlings, they're going to start to fear one another, but their hate for the Horde will only continue to grow. And uh, the Inquirer says, be gone. I don't care. <laughs> Listen, man, the Inquirer is exactly what this Horde has been waiting for. This group has been defeated. They were softened in previous issues. But, man, they are back in sadistic form like crazy mm-hmm. here. And you can add, like, belly bombs to their list of the many, many, many atrocities in the first few issues, man. Oh, Oh, boy. These are some of the cruelest, most uh, just unbelievably disgusting, you know, villains you've ever seen in a comic book, man. From their their look to their their atrocities. I mean, this this is something. Absolutely. Now, we take a break from uh, the the strike force here, and we pop over to Carmel, California, which is uh, the home of Guy Harding. Check it out. Aileen already gave birth to the Moratori Tot. And uh, it's funny because we're going to talk about a lot of the stuff that – a lot of our uh, feelings after this issue here. But uh, I feel like I'm I'm misremembering so much about this because I could have sworn there was an actual birthing scene. And, Me too. Uh, I absolutely. Okay. I, good. I thought I okay. it. Yeah, because uh, there isn't one here. Aileen is just laying in her bed, and there's a incubation tank behind her bed with a baby floating in it. You know, so the baby's out. Um, Guy Harding he chats up a uh, you know chemo Talima, and uh, this is really cool. We learn here that Aileen had undergone the moratory process thirteen and a half months ago. Ooh, wait a minute here. Yeah, I mean, everything we've been told so far is they will die within a year. So she actually beat that one-year limit by a month and a half at this point. Now, uh, Talima explains the basic premise of the process, 
which is introducing a hypermetabolism that is incompatible with the human body in order to create superpowers. He then goes on to posit that having a child inside her, you know, quote, another foreign metabolism, that might have actually slowed down the process. Man, that's genius. I'm Isn't telling it? you. Isn't yes. And, this is uh, well thought out. Oh, it's it's amazing. And uh, he actually, uh, Talima here, he figures maybe the answer to the question of whether or not there might actually be a cure for the process, that all may lie in Aileen's pregnancy. Which, <laughs> which is, is uh, which is uh, which is pretty cool. So now yeah. the solution is for everybody to just get knocked up, I guess. <laughs> good, good thing we have a hard case, right? Yes. Maybe <laughs> these recruits finally have a reason to start acting Runday. <laughs> <laughs> but this time they can use, you know, they can use one of these sleaze bag lines from a bar. They can say, "It's just to save our lives, baby." You know, yes. it's one of those oldest tricks in the book. <laughs> just sleep with me so I can live on, baby. <laughs> I can't Horrible. go on another day. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Now, uh, Harding, he asks if this means there might be hope for Aileen's survival. And uh, Talim is like, my boy, hope's pretty much all we got. So, uh, it's uh, yeah, it's maybe a little foreshadowing, but uh, we'll, we'll, we'll continue. Uh, we hop back on board the super train. Super train! <laughs> okay, go ahead. the four <laughs> they're being shipped off to Washington, D.C. because the horde are attacking. And uh, we learned that this was apparently one of the very first places that the Horde struck when the war began all them years ago. Now, I like this, and I'm a, I'm a huge fan of the Super Train as a, as oh, yeah. a vehicle, you know what I mean? You know, when um, when you get super teams with uh, with super vehicles, I mean, that was always something that I loved as a kid. You know, I was I thrilled that the Fantastic Four had, you know, the Fantastic Car and all that type of stuff. So I love when Kirby used to draw that. And, oh, the old I, hub in the sky. Oh, yeah. man, it was so, – but I loved it. I just thought it was oh, the yeah. coolest thing. And the Super Train, we get to see something cool about the Super Train. It's actually equipped with its own, you know, launching shuttle panel, its own plane <laughs> that's really built into the side of the vehicle. This is like the greatest super vehicle ever made, man. This is crazy. Oh, yeah. It's like uh, this would be just another awesome, um, you know, uh, action figure accessory. You know, <laughs> I the, want uh, this playset. You yes. know, never you, you never know what might happen in uh, wave two of that Strike Force Moratory action figure that line. That's true. I'm getting true. that Super Train. I'm telling you. <laughs> <laughs> that'll be like the uss flag it'll be like the 600 hundred dollar toy that only one kid in the neighborhood will have and you'll hate him for it oh uh, <laughs> pure vitriol we'll call it <laughs> no it's not long before the team arrives at the nation's capital uh, we assume it's still the nation's capital on earth you know 1287 um we do see that hordian crafts hordian crafts hover overhead and they are blasting willy-nilly now we see an interesting shift into Hordian craft this time, of course, mm-hmm. you know, yes. it's because we've seen like all different varieties of, you know, Hordian mech. I mean, they, there was nothing standard about anything, but now they seem to have shifted to almost like a, a basic UFO style with like mm-hmm. blasters. Flying something saucer. Yeah. yeah say like a flying saucer. And, you know, why have they waited so long to unveil this fleet? You know what I mean? If they had this at their disposal, you think mm-hmm. they would have just launched this attack a lot earlier when they came to earth. Would you not? But you know, sure. But anyway, yeah, we get strange. first we got belly bombs this issue, and now we got like the War to World invasion, you know, ships sort of. <laughs> so, you know, all the the Hordians, especially under the Gentle Inquirer, are uh, a brand new gang over here. We're seeing lots of surprises from these guys. Oh yeah, they are upgraded and loaded for bear. Um, now the streets of Washington D.C. are full of Hordians, and they are just like the UFOs, blasting willy nilly. 
got a lot of human casualties this time out. Um, so yeah, the horde under the Inquirer, they are not screwing around. Um, our team here, they hit the ground running. Oh boy, do they ever. And we get to see our first like mega panel by Anderson here. So it's a great shot of like the, all the new recruits and you get to see, and we rarely get to see these, uh, you know, these, these setup panels, like yeah. they're running, they're flying, they're just headed in a direction. They're on their way. You know, it's a really, really cool image and of all the new guys too. So, you know, it's a real first look at them as a team, like acting as superheroes. And it was, I think it's a really, really wicked panel. Oh, it is. It is. And, uh, speaking of which we have another one here and, um, yeah, we get this beautiful though, sort of a logical splash page. Now we have all the living members of the team. They're car- uh, we have a uh, Brava's in the forefront there, and she's carrying a tattered Padilla flag for some reason. Uh, I don't know why, but uh, they're on the ground, and then above them are all those who fell, like in a, an ethereal pose struck, you know, sort of form there, where it's like the first time we're seeing all of them, all of the all the Strike Force members from day one till now in the same beautiful splash page. Yeah, it's excellent. Mm-hmm. This is, I mean, this is like this is the money shot, man. Brent yeah. Anderson really, really uh, blew his uh, proverbial pencil glue here on this one. Yeah. <laughs> you can you can actually feel that like he's actually saying goodbye literally with his pencil here with this particular page. I mean, it's just it's very mm-hmm. fitting that you know. His last appearance coincides with the last of the original crew too, which we'll uh, get into that a little bit later. But man, this is uh, this is poster for your wall. This is original art that you want to hunt down if you're trying to find a page of Strike Force Moratory. Yeah. This is the shot that you want right here. This is the one. Yes, uh, it is worth noting that Will Deguchi is not here at all. He is not represented on this one, um, yeah, so we don't gonna, know what his story is just yet. We're gonna. It's gonna be interesting if we see Deguchi to come back at all. But you know, if Gillis and Anderson are gone, then there's a pretty good chance that you know maybe the douche is gonna get passed over and people will forget he's even on the team. So well, who uh, knows? Let's let's uh, let's let's you know what's that old axiom? Let's be careful what we wish for. <laughs> Fair enough. That's all the we'll du- say. The, the douche was just getting good. <laughs> he was. Um, also, Aileen is missing, but her circumstances are, you know, a little bit different. She she did go AWOL, so, you know, she's not going to just fit in with, uh, with the rest of the team here. Um, so, the team, they hit the ground running. The, they I guess they put down the Padian flag. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> Sheer rushes in, and he, uh, well, he shears a super Hordian. Boy, does and, he ever. He does, and uh, he's, you know, remember, he is field leader, whether he likes it or not, Um, and so he just begins shouting orders to his team, so it is nice to see him growing into this role. Yeah, like, who would have thought that, you know, the human lawnmower himself, Hmm. you know, would be the leader that we never even knew we wanted? I mean, it almost feels strange to see, you know, just an actual leader in the group after having, you know, gone so long with the team just basically winging it, you know what I mean, without a leader. Yeah. For sure. That's one thing I'll give Yuri. Yuri seems to bring back, you know, a bit of almost like structure to the team or something like that. Uh, that Beth maybe may have been a little bit lacking, I think, probably. But either way, 
Sheer is drawn this way, almost like he has claw hands. And I'm thinking yeah. to myself, oh, here we go. Mm-hmm. And you know what? It really makes sense because, you know, around this time, Wolverine's popularity, you know, with the whole claw thing, you know, it's reaching a fever pitch back in 88. So every team had to have the claw guy. So, you know, Strike Force <laughs> Moratori is not exempt. So we get Sheer, the claw guy. So, and it's kind of cool because he's kicking ass here. He is indeed. Yes. The one with the claws for sure. Um, now, Ruth, she approaches another Hordian warrior only to learn that, well, this one isn't a Hordian at all. Uh, this is actually a human who was genetically altered to look like a Hordian. And uh, he has one of those like nasty spider face hugger things on the side of his head as well. Yeah, it's like one call out here, you know, the face hugger is using the human almost like a vessel to talk through. So it's yep. like, you know, it's like the, <laughs> the whole Matt Hardy, broken Matt Hardy thing, you know, his vessel is, <laughs> is uh, he's speaking through his vessel. But anyway, uh, it's just, just another one of these new Hordian details that they're just throwing at us. I mean, there's, yeah. who, who would have thought that, you know, these face huggers could literally speak yep. when they it goes through a human vessel. Like, yeah, they can communicate. It, it's for sure. I love this, man. Like, every single thing that they're adding on here is all useful stuff. I love it. And it's all stuff. I mean, as much as it's surprising us, it's also surprising the team because yep. they weren't prepared for any of this. It's like now, they're, saving, uh, they're saving all these little nuggets as surprises. Like, hey, yeah. <laughs> you thought we didn't have anything up our sleeve? Here's a belly bomb and a face hugger. Here you go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> for sure. Now, this, uh, this modded human has also been altered to, uh, well, have a bomb in his belly. <laughs> And uh, yep. that bomb doth go boom. And when you see this panel, the first thing I thought was that now poor Ruth was front and center. He was yeah. like she was facing this person with the belly bomb and the, the bomb exploded. So I just thought Ruth had taken the full brunt of this blast. But if you look at the panel closely, it looks like Brava actually jumps in front of the bomb, shielding them all. Yep. So, yeah. Yeah. She jumps like, she's like get behind. And yeah. she, she takes man. the brunt of it. She takes the entire, like basically the, the wind out of the blast, man. It's awesome. Mm-hmm. For sure. We hop back to Carmel and uh, Aileen wakes up and she informs Talima that she's not feeling well. And she says, uh, I think I'm dying. Um, Talima assures her that it isn't her time just yet. Now, at this point, Guy changes the subject, and he asks her if she remembers Jaylene's dingus. <laughs> I didn't know she had a dingus. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, and he actually says, he actually says, you know, the dingus that she brought back from Jupiter. Um, <laughs> and that dingus is, uh, of course, something she brought back from the Horde's Jupiter base way back in issue number 12. Uh, Aileen really doesn't even, like, respond to Guy. And uh, instead, she, you know, she ignores the the dingus question and waxes on about her pending death. And here she brings up the fact that she's already seen her death when the haberdasher died via melting. (laughs) And she really, really, really doesn't want to go out that way. So this is the sole reason for Wildcard's existence. So Mm -hmm. his uh, his whole powers, Johnny Cronella's powers, is that he could steal somebody else's powers as long as he was close to them. And we're thinking to ourselves first when we heard about this character, we're like, 
this got to be the stupidest and most interesting, you know, <laughs> yeah. powers of all. Because I mean, if you could steal somebody else's powers, you've got the ability to, you know, you know, fight your fight your competitor one on one, you know, at an even playing mm-hmm. field all the time. So you know, it's a it's a unique power to have. However, when you think about his whole purpose, he actually took her powers and took her death as well. So I don't know if he thought that was in the playbook as well. Hey, if I, you know, <laughs> took this person's powers and all of a sudden he ends up dying. But Jaylene, or Aileen, I should say, actually gets to see her own death play out with somebody else. So she knows what's yep. coming for her. It's crazy. Exactly. Not Listen, I don't know about you, but I, I I, don't want to know how I'm going to die personally. I, I no, really don't. No, I like not. to leave certainly that as a little bit of a surprise down the road, but uh, man. <laughs> Or Aileen didn't get that opportunity. She saw it full front and center. It's true. Uh, now we hop back to what's left of Washington, D.C., and uh, our team has just been decimated. Uh, they've been flung all the way across the city, which is now mostly on fire, and uh, we got bodies littered pretty much all over the place. And it looks like our girl Brava, who, you know, who took the full brunt of the blast, is lying down at the bottom of the panel there with her top completely blown off and just lying there sunny side up in the rubble with, uh, you know, with some rubble just barely covering her ladies. <laughs> That's true. That is very true. I didn't even notice that the first time through. Good Lord. Uh, now, the gentle inquirer chooses now to deliver a message. And uh, he reminds the team that, the, hey, guys, we're in a war. And... Uh, you guys think you're heroes, but check it out. Wars don't need heroes. It just needs killers. Yikes. And, uh, I mean, he's not completely wrong. You know, um, you could be heroic and not have it in you to kill. You ain't going to win that war, you know, if it's a war like this anyway. So very, yeah. very I, uh, pointed I, words. And I think that's the whole moral that this entire, like, first 20 issues are trying to get at. You know what I mean? Yeah. War is war. War is killing. You yeah. know what I mean? It doesn't mm-hmm. matter who, what side of the fence you're on, if you're Horde or if you're Strike Force, you're killing. Bottom line. Yeah, and that's something I was gonna say for the end of the uh, end of the uh, synopsis portion. But this whole uh, the whole lead up has been basically romanticizing uh, one side of the war in in the more Tory side, and uh, the 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 gentle inquirer is like, screw all that. You know, there's nothing romantic about this. We're killing each other. Yep, and it's a uh, it's it's kind of a shock to the system here, and you can even see the team members here. They're just like, wow, you know, what was it, what was this all for? What what is our place here? You know, um, it's it's pretty striking stuff here, and uh, it looks like they're just about to just throw it all away. They're like, okay, screw it then. At, at which point they're rushed upon by a group of children. Who start chanting "Strike Force, Strike Force" at them, which uh, um, seems to warm was, their you know, hearts. That was an awesome image, actually. So you yeah. can see that you can see this playing out on a, like a Netflix series or whatever. You got the big explosion. You think that they're all dead and all that stuff, and slowly but surely, you know, our heroes climb out of the rubble to prove, you know, they can't mm-hmm. be beaten and they're ready to go for another day. And you get the kids surrounding them, so you know they're finally fully embraced by the public, which they've struggled with off and on because the media, you yeah. know. Had, had villainized them several yeah. times, you know what it means. But uh, you know they're they're right where they need to be right now. They are the heroes, and it's this was just an awesome scene, man. I loved it. Oh, it's amazing, amazing stuff here. And uh, like, and you can even see as the kids are running toward 
the the team here some of them are scared some of them are just gung-ho let's get to the heroes it's 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 really cool it's really cool stuff um they th- they think that everything is going to be okay because the strike force is here yep and that sure. that is a uh that's very touching to be quite it's honest the whole point you. yeah yeah it's the whole that's point it. um now we hop back over to carmel and uh aileen is re- reading a very purple book and uh it's kind of one of those that you know, maybe a Marvel editor would like to pretend pretend they've read for the profile. Um, Bet they now, didn't read this one either. <laughs> Don't worry. Oh, oh boy, I, I I barely made it through the panel. Um, <laughs> now, what she's reading is actually a book called Under Milkwood by Dylan Thomas, which was adapted by, from a 1954 radio drama. It's a uh, very purple, um, and uh, I had to read this panel several times over just to like make sense of it. Uh, it really doesn't matter. I, I'm, I'm sure there's some sort of a reason why Gillis put this here. Uh, I just don't – I'm just not literate enough to know. Um, now, Aileen – yeah, I mean, it's, it is it is what it is. Uh, if maybe Peter Gillis wants to tell us the significance of Under Milkwood, <laughs> we would love to hear it. But uh, Aileen is joined by Guy, and uh, at this point she begins to remember her old friend Harold. She tells Guy something that Harold always said was, hate is not a good enough reason to die. Boom. And she's, there you go. Mm-hmm. And she says Harold was right. She gets up at this point and goes over to hug Kimo Talima, and she asks him to take care of her baby. She then stands next to Guy Harding and dies. Ah, man. Yep. This was a... When I say very touching death, it was this one hit me in the guts, man. They really mm-hmm. set this up good. Brent's use of panels was is just you don't get to see you know the character die a sadistic death or anything like that. It's very you don't have very to see it. yeah you don't, you don't see it. It's see. all implied and you you know your your head is to you know exactly what's going to ha- what's going on here. And uh, Aileen has been a favorite of mine, and you know she's been Anderson's basically the you know the ugly duckling who who mm-hmm. could you know what I mean she. Uh, she wanted the best for her team. She stood up for her team. She's one of the original members who you, uh, you know, you basically grew up with on this book. And, uh, you know, you, if you read it from the beginning, you had a real passion for for this team. And she was the last last of them. And when you look at this, you know, um, this may have been just the Aileen story all along when you think about it. You know what I mean? True. Now, we, we always True. talk about Harold and we talk about the different characters. But really, when you look at it, this is Aileen's story up to now. Mm-hmm. So. Very, very touching ending and uh, just just beautiful, beautiful use of panel here. And it really it surprised me because another thing that I have misremembered about this, the end of the Gillis and Anderson run was I I could have sworn Aileen survived. Yeah, me I too. Thought, I thought uh, good. OK, so I'm not a, I thought that because, it was going to be like some sort of a weird thing where she is able to beat the be, you know beat the limit uh, you know forever the reason why i thought that and it was a bit of a cheat because i was just going through the covers on mycomicshop.com here you go this is a cheap plug for you a new sponsor <laughs> new sponsor uh anyway i just went through just to take a just a quick glance at the uh the cover images and i swear one of the later issues still had a character that looked a little bit like jaylene just in a different okay. suit so i'm like oh she's still alive all right well she survives so I thought mm. I had a little bit of a cheat going on, but apparently not. Nope. Yeah, yeah, it's so weird. I, I, the two things with Aileen this issue, the, the, I thought we saw her birth, and I thought she survived, and uh, neither now, of those happened. 
one thing she disintegrates in Guy Harding's arms. Like yeah. Harding wasn't affected at all. Like how was he protected? <laughs> it's true. It's true. I, yeah, I don't it's, know. Uh, Maybe it's yeah. just like uh, you know, what's the spontaneous combustion when somebody turns could into be. dust? Yeah, it could very well be. Weird. Yeah, but it's a, uh, it's it's a very very powerful page and a, one of many in this issue. Um, Can I tell you a story? And Certainly. this is the stupidest thing. So one of the shows I used to watch as a kid growing up used to be called That's Incredible. I don't know if you've ever heard of that show. I've heard of it. So basically all it is is just a series of, you know, they had three hosts and, um, you know, they would they would each. Was Fran Tarkington one of them? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes, he was. Fran Tarkington was definitely in it. And John Davidson and another lady whose name escapes. But anyway, the entire mm-hmm. thing of it was they, they would tell incredible stories that you would never believe. You know what I mean? But they were actually true. Sure. And one of the stories that haunted me, and I kept remembering it as a kid, was a guy who said that he, you know, he knew someone who spontaneously combusted in a bathtub. And his foot spontaneously combusted and turned to dust out of nowhere. And this literally frightened me as a kid. I'm like, oh, my God, I I might spontaneously combust. Like, I literally thought this was a thing. But, uh, you know, thank you. That's incredible for those nightmares that you gave me as a (laughs) kid. Sleepless uh, nights, yeah. Man. Thank you, John Davidson. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Eric Bischoff looking jerk. Um, (laughs) Now, we jump to later on that night. And uh, Kimo and Guy, they're in the desert playing with Jaylene's dingus. Um, (laughs) Now, they're hoping that... Yeah, like you would. Now, they're hoping that this is a transmitter of source, uh, sorts, and uh, with it, they would like to send out, like, sort of a cosmic SOS to any alien life forms, alpha or otherwise, who may come to Earth and aid them in their battle against the Horde. As they're doing this, and as uh, as Kimo is uh, fiddling with the dingus, a uh, guy wonders out loud if, uh, you know, hey, hey, you know, this call might be answered by anybody what if it's aliens that are just as bad, if not worse than the Horde? What if they're the Horde's best friends? What what, what then? <laughs> and uh, Talima flips the switch anyway, and uh, all that's left is to wait. Man, this is this is the perfect perfect wrap up to this you know this twenty yeah. issues. I mean, uh, you know we've seen all the death. We you know we see the Strike Force you know standing strong at the end of this one. We got the Tulima scene you know perfectly rendered here with his hair blowing and. Uh, you know that, you know, you want to know who's going to hear this beacon. Like, who's going to show up? This is such yep. a good idea. Like, it leaves you with hope. It wants you to, you know, mm-hmm. you want to know more, but you're okay if this was the last episode because it, it gives you hope. Yes, you know, we had the Horde, you know, do this just pure atrocity with these, you know, gut bombs and all this stuff. But you're okay with that because if you end yeah. it here, you know that maybe more help is on the way. And it's just, it's just beautiful. It's just beautiful. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But we actually wrap up back in Commander Yuri's office, and uh, he is finishing up listening to Harold's audio memoir. And uh, on the monitors before him is a list of all the fallen members of, of the Strike Force and the Black Watch, everyone who's passed. And uh, after Harold quits yapping, uh, all Yuri is able to summon up is a damn. Damn. Mm-hmm. But that is uh wow. Yeah. Yeah, so the last word that Peter Gillis wrote in this book was damn. <laughs> um the issue actually has a little note at the very end of the uh, final panel. And it says that the next issue will come out by May 10th, 
which is two months after this one. Um, this is the first time Strike Force Moratorium will miss a month. And uh, I wonder what that's all about. I just, you know, is the delay because as a result of like, was the, was the Anderson Gillis exodus, was this planned or was this a sudden exodus? I don't exit? know. Because I, it would yeah. make sense that they had to, you know, gather their, gather their senses. And did they have nothing? Like, they didn't have any stock pages. They didn't have another cats issue and waiting that they could fill in. Yeah, you know what I mean? Heaven yeah, forbid another anything. cats issue. I'm, I'm not, I'm not <laughs> condoning that at all, but I'm just saying <laughs> they didn't have nothing in a, in a filing cabinet, nowhere that they could have put out for this issue. It's just really odd. It is. And very, I, very I, strange. And I took a glance at that next issue, and I know you did too. And uh, yeah. we're in for some culture shock next issue. This is nowhere close to uh, to Anderson and Gillis, and I think they might have actually replaced <laughs> replaced uh, Brent Anderson with a computer. Partially, yes, yes, yes. It's uh, not. This is going to be. I mean, if you bought this in trade, um, and it would have to end with this issue because if it included any issues after this you would not even you would think that you would you would have to get your eyes checked you know you wouldn't it, it's so very different um it uh yeah it's, it, we're in for some very interesting uh discussions oh, coming up very very soon I, um, I i i feel guilty that you know we're, we're about to uh you know, we've been so glowing about this book for the first 20 issues that yeah. to, to know that we're we may be on the verge of trashing it. I I don't know. But anyway, yeah, yeah. I don't uh, like what I, I don't like what I see on the surface. Let's put it that way. No. And uh, and it's not like it's not like this is just going to like limp to the ending here. I, like with two or three issues, we've got 12. Yeah, we have a whole year's worth of uh, Strike Force Moratory plus. Electric undertow. Um, so, <laughs> it's, all I gotta uh, say, all I gotta say, when I took a look at it, the, the cover for the next one literally looks like it's. Uh, it, it just remind me of like the hard times promo. You know what I mean? And the hard times when a man has worked this job for thirty years, thirty years, and they give him, they a, give watch, him a go watch, but. <laughs> And he said, hey, a computer just took your place, Daddy. Now that, that's hard times. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, the cover is, you know, I, I know uh, Mike Mignola is a uh, divisive artist. I know some people absolutely love his stuff. I know some people who really can't get into it. Um, it is a Mike Mignola cover. He does not do the interiors. But as a Mike Mignola cover, it's not good. It's uh, too. My it's, first experience with Mike Mignola was mm-hmm. Cosmic Odyssey. Okay. The original series. Uh, the the, Starling, you know, the yeah. 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 So got that from New England Comics. Got it in the mail. Couldn't wait for it to arrive. Wanted to know all about it. And I looked at that cover and I said, "Who in the <laughs> drew this? Is this a five-year-old? Like who? This is trash." Now. Obviously, you know, the stylistic approach, you know, you got your Keith Givens, you got your Mignolas at the time who were doing something way outside the box. They weren't doing your <laughs> your John Buscema from yeah. Marvel. You know what I mean? They were going for something artistic and impressionist. And uh, boy, did they ever. So anyway, welcome Mignola to strike for, I guess. Yeah, it's, uh, it's going to be it's going to be very jarring. Um, it's like I'm partially really looking forward to it, but I'm also really sort of dreading it uh, for all the same reasons that uh, that you you just mentioned. Uh, with uh, we have been boosters of this book for, I mean, we've been doing this show for almost a year at this point, and it's 
it's like it's 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 important it's an important book that we would we would like everybody to try but we're here we're come, gonna here comes uh, the unraveling folks <laughs> yeah yeah and i'm afraid like someone will like discover the show with episode 24 and be like oh this is what what kind of garbage is strike force moratorium it's like no it wasn't always we're gonna have to start with the disclaimer Every single time after this, it's like, this used to be a good book. We swear to Jesus, it was. <laughs> yes. And, and you know, the thing of it is, I mean, we might read the next issue and absolutely love it. Yep, who knows? We'll you never know. I, we I, will I, read this for you so you don't have to, people. Yes, because <laughs> uh, these first, uh, the, the first po- portion of Strike Force Moratory is one that I've read um, multiple times. These uh, issues 21 through 32... Ugh, I, I think I I read a few of them and then I kind of scanned them and then I read a few oh, more and yeah. I sc- it was just like it wasn't very deep reads. Uh, it was basically it was basically like anytime I would do like a Doom Patrol read through and I'd get to the John Byrne run, it's like okay let's skim, you know, <laughs> this isn't important, yep. let's skim. But uh, yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be some wild times. Uh, do you have any final thoughts for? I mean. These first 20 issues, or do you have any anything that we haven't said yet that you'd like to? I think just a snapshot. If you're looking at a a piece of comics book, you know, work that you want to get into, that you want to read. If you're looking for something to dive into, I I can't think of a better first 20 issues just to to have and to hold in your collection than Strike Force yeah. Moratory 1 to 20, man, because this is comics at its absolute best, and I just loved it. Oh yeah, no, it's it's a wonderful, wonderful series. We in- highly encourage you to get your you know Marvel app. It's all on there. I, I don't know if the if if twenty one through thirty two is on there, but uh, <laughs> if they they're are, not, they're, then, then they, lucky they you. all were. Oh okay, okay. So they are they're all they're all there. You could do exactly what we're doing here. Just check out every single thing, and uh, and we we're, we're pretty sure for at least the first. Uh, <laughs> the first bucketful, you'll love it. The the other issues were still on the computer that created them. See, there you go. They haven't they hadn't <laughs> downloaded yet. <laughs> no, we sometimes read the solicit before we get into the book here, but I didn't. We did we didn't want to ruin the uh, you know the whole point here uh, that that you know Harold was going to be looming large over this issue. So the solicit we have is when the new moratory finds the late Vikings tape recorder and autobiography, the stage is set for a landmark tale in the annals of the moratory. All of the loose ends surrounding the old moratory are tied up as the new generation prepares to take over, even though the fledgling heroes know it will cost them their lives. I love so, that. Uh, I'm, gl- I'm glad that they didn't yeah. put that at the beginning because it told the tale, but man, that... They finally got it right, Chris. Thank God. Well, it took mm-hmm. them 20 issues, but they got that blurb right. Well, there you go. <laughs> now, uh, no letters page. None. <laughs> of course not. Why, why would you have anything good to say about this This entire 20 issues? There's nothing to say, right? It's all garbage, according to Marvel. But, uh, but a little bit of a spoiler alert. Uh, neither of us have read Moratory number 21 yet, but... Did flip through it, and there is a letters page there. Two pages of letters, in fact. Oh, um, look out! And uh, there is a there's going to be a little bit of spinning from Marvel editorial, so we will have that to discuss next week. Um, we do have bullpen bulletins, which are not part of next week's uh, book, <laughs> but uh, it, it's weird. Next week's book has like two ads, no bulletin page, and uh, and two letters pages. There's a uh, 
There's no bullpen bulletins. There's no profile. I'm going to have to go through and see other books that came out that month to see if there's a profile we can pull from one of them. But uh, there might not be. Yeah, there might not be. But uh, we do have one this time, and we will open, as always, with the quote of the week. You want to hit them with the quote? Sure. The quote of the week is, I must either support a doomed revolt, which will result in the slaughter of millions of my brothers, or do nothing and be branded a traitor to my race and to freedom everywhere. T'Challa, mm-hmm. the Black Panther, from Black Panther numero one. Mm-hmm. Yes, we have news, news items here, and they are just as boring as always. Uh, we start with hard-hitting Harry Candelario. He's returned to Marvel's frenetic photostatting department. <laughs> Happy days are here again. He's returned to the photostatting department. Think about yes, that. He, where he, where was hard-hitting Harry if he's just being upgraded to the photostatting department? <laughs> well, he, he actually left for a uh, tour with the Marines, but... Uh, <laughs> he was over in Hammerville, locked up was... <laughs> in isolation <of> Siberia. <laughs> but uh, yes, I... I I, I can't imagine who these notes, who these news items are for. Uh, maybe they're just for the Candelario family. I don't know. It's literally talking about the restructuring. Like this is this oh, is yeah. meant to literally stir the staff in, internally. This is yeah, definitely this is, yeah. yep. This is needles in the gym shooter voodoo doll for sure. It is. Um, another another news item here. Our, our last news item actually. New editors are joining the Defalco regime. <laughs> Oh, boy. We have A.A. Perry, who's replacing David Wall on special projects, assisting Craig Anderson. Mm. I don't recognize any of those names. Nope. Clearly not. Joanne Spaldo is the new assistant editor to Howard Mackey on the New Universe titles. (laughs) Poor Joanne. Yeah. Good good luck with that, by the way. Mm -hmm. We see you having a very long future at Marvel. (laughs) Maybe she she did. I don't know. But uh, not with the New Universe. No. Uh, Kelly Corvis is now the assistant editor to senior editorial secretary Sue Flexman. And uh, their job is to input most of the letters pages into the computer. (laughs) Finally, Barbara Arnstein is now the editorial secretary to Mark Grunwald. The most important person at Marvel. Yes, at least least the second most for sure. Uh, now, the news items are actually cut off by a special announcement. Oh, I actually love this. to be. But I, re- I recall this back in the day, but go ahead. Now Let the people know. Quote, the most exciting television event of the decade is coming to NBC sometime this May. And uh, this is that uh, Incredible Hulk TV movie that features Thor. I, I, I never really, really got into those, so I'll leave, uh, I'll leave the explanation to you. Oh, so good. I was a huge, huge fan of the uh, Ken Johnson Incredible Hulk series from the 70s with uh, Bill Bixby as David, don't call me Bruce Banner, mm-hmm. uh, and Lou Ferrigno, of course, as the Incredible Hulk. I mean, it went mm-hmm. on for a few seasons. Um, I thought it was top shelf stuff. And of course, after it got canceled, Marvel always had intentions of, you know, re- returning the Hulk to TV. And their way to do it was they wanted to bring it back uh, under Ken Johnson, of course, um, with three TV movies. So the first okay. of which is the one you spoke of, which was, you know, had Thor in there. And it was called The Return of the Incredible Hulk. And it featured, of course, Lou Ferrigno's The Hulk, Bill Bixby, um, you know, as Don't Call Me Bruce. Um mm-hmm. Uh, David Banner. And of course, they had Eric Allen Kramer as Thor, 
Now, many people remember Thor as being Vincent, uh, what's his name? Vincent, Vincent D'Onofrio? Uh, yeah, D'Onofrio. Yeah, you know, uh, Kingpin, for example. Oh, from Adventures in Babysitting. Yeah, he was yes. actually Thor in Adventures in Babysitting, but people recall Vincent as being this particular Thor in the TV oh, show, but actually, okay. it was Eric Allen Kramer, who's actually the dad from Good Luck Charlie. <laughs> so there you go, with the Disney Channel, so there you go. <laughs> little uh, little fun fact. Now the other two movies that came out after the Return of the Incredible Hulk, they we had, had the Daredevil, tri- right? Yep. There was okay. one with the Trial of the Incredible Hulk, and the other one was the Death of the Incredible Hulk. So three made-for-TV movies, and uh, you know their their quality is up and down. But man, at the time, seeing the Hulk in prime time, oh Chris, this was must-watch TV. We didn't have the you know the MCU and the DCU mm-hmm. at that time. We didn't have any of that stuff on our movie screens and television screens. This is all we had, and I could not wait for you know. Someone to Lou Bold, uh, Lou Ferrigno up at that green uh, oil paint and uh, get him out of my screen. I just love those things. Now, with the death of the Incredible Hulk, did he actually die? Yeah, he falls out of a helicopter and he dies. Yep. Oh, well, how about that? <laughs> yes. I don't think he was meant to stay dead, but, uh, you know, I think uh, after the ratings came in, it just sort of ended up happening. Because <laughs> what I remember from Bill Bixby is uh, that he was the host of something called the Elvis Files. Oh, yes. And uh, the, it's funny, and this is you, – you talked about being being scared about spontaneous combustion. When I was growing <laughs> up, um, my, my mother and, and some of her friends told me that I, I was petrified by uh, the deaths of Marilyn Monroe and Elvis Presley. Because, uh, because, because I couldn't, because they were always in question, you know, because like we, we didn't know how Marilyn Monroe died or, you know, or if she was hiding somewhere. Elvis, I mean, even to this day, there are people who probably spot Elvis at Denny's, uh, you know, every Wednesday. Um, and it really just scared the hell out of me when I was a little, little kid. And I, I thinking about it now is hilarious, but, uh. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember hearing of uh, hearing about the, the, the Elvis Files was going to be on, and I, I like forced myself to watch it. And uh, boy, did it was they, the dumbest did thing. they reveal anything? It, like the five Elvises came. No, no, I mean it's a uh, it was just <laughs> it was just silly stuff. Um, I've actually done a lot of uh, Elvis research uh, insofar as the sightings and stuff. Um, after that, that was a uh, that was actually. A uh, a script, a cosmic treadmill script that uh, oh, we were gonna do. Yes, a, that's so good. Was, it was gonna be a uh, it was gonna be an independent comic called The King about a, a <laughs> Elvis uh, uh, being alive, like in Las Vegas or something, um, and like hiding in plain sight, basically. And the whole uh, the whole hook of that episode was gonna be discussions about all the weird, you know, like. You remember that guy Orion who came out, uh, who people thought was Elvis? Like it was oh, basically God, yes. oh, we wore yeah. like that like really cheap like dollar store mask with bedazzling on it. I mean that that is such a there there's an, a wealth of weird weird information in there, and uh, we were gonna for we forced ourselves to read this The King book just so we could talk about Elvis stuff. But uh, oh man, you got to yeah. do an episode on the on the King. I can't wait to hear your. Uh, <laughs> Your in-depth analysis on all the uh, the Elvis sightings that that is gold. Oh, there's, there's a lot of weird stuff in there. Um, but back to uh, the Hulk here and uh, the most exciting television event of the decade. Now, you'd figure if this was actually the most exciting television event of the decade, they'd probably be able to narrow its premiere down better than to say 
sometime in May. (laughs) Don't plan anything for May. Just sit in front of the NBC. Is this this where Stan Lee is getting everything ready for Hollywood? And they they couldn't even tell, you know, they didn't even, number one, they didn't even know where Stan was at this time, let alone did he work for the company or what he was doing. And now they get this. Or is he suing us? We don't know. And and this ambiguous, yeah, we're going to have a Hulk movie and it's going to be great. And it's Excelsior and the kids are going to love it, right? I mean, I don't know. (laughs) Not not a ringing endorsement when you say sometime in May. Let's put it that way. Yeah, sometime in May. Um, We do have a profile. It is Pat Redding. Oh, boy. This is a disaster of a profile. Anyway, this let's get into the it. worst one yet. Um, now, her gig is uh, assistant slash managing editor on The Nam, Semper Fi, Steel Town Rockers, Conan Saga, Conan the Barbarian, Conan the King, Savage Sword of Conan, The Nam Magazine, and The Shadow. Which is a, which is a reprint, which is a reprint of The oh. Nam. So good on Pat Redding for uh, editing not only The Nam, but now the reprints. Nice. And uh, we want to we want to like send out a message here to creators who had their profiles written 30 years ago. You could just say all the Conans. <laughs> you don't have to list all of them. You could just say, oh, I do all the Conans. Yeah, you're, we're, you're we're padding. We're, yeah, we're we're gonna see how much padding that Pat Redding actually does in one of her uh, one of the her claims to fame as a freelancer here on next. <laughs> that is true. Yes, her past freelance work include inking on Thundercats, Conan, only one Conan, uh, Young Astronauts, and a Steve Ditko drawn issue of What If. What a lying bee! <laughs> all I got to say about this person. <laughs> So let's roll the tape back here. So Thundercats. Okay, fair enough. Conan. Yep, you certainly did enough Conan. Young Astronauts. Oh, no, you didn't. (laughs) So I'm going to tell you a story. I'm a Saturday morning cartoon fan, okay? So Mm -hmm. Young Astronauts is one of these cartoons that is uh, in Saturday morning lore that not many people have know about it because it didn't exist. So it's a crazy story. I mean, the franchise... I mean, it just wasn't meant to make it. Let's think. Let's think about it. So, if you're into comics and all that stuff, I'm sure you've seen the ad with Hulk Hogan's Rock and Wrestling for Saturday. You know, CBS's Saturday morning cartoon lineup. It's one of the most famous ones you'll see in the comic books. Big yeah. Hulk Hogan on the side. You know, Muppet Babies is on there. Berenstain Bears and Young Astronauts. Now, the Young Astronauts cartoon was supposed to focus on space exploration and, you know, Astral's adventures of this Hampton family. Plus, you always have to have a sidekick. So they had a robotic Mm -hmm. maintenance sidekick named Retro as they have adventures in space, of course. Now, as fate would have it, in real life, we went through the shuttle Challenger, uh, you know, the Challenger shuttle disaster. It happened on live TV, you know, but they still, a couple days later, they were supposed to air this show. You know, it was supposed to debut. And CBS, of course, decided to that it was too close to home, and they decided to pull the plug. You know, it's it's in bad taste to air something about, you know, exploration in space when we had this tragedy. Certainly. So, of course, there was a legend, however, that a pilot episode did air, but its existence is not only unknown, but nobody has a copy of this thing. So you tell me that nobody... Back in 1980, I don't know, I don't know how long 86. ago this. I think it was the yeah. 86, 87 lineup that we had here, um, February 86, I think, or January. But anyway, 
according to somebody, they said that this pilot actually aired. Now, an anonymous commentator on a blog said the pilot episode was actually shown on January 26, 1986, on CBS, just two days before the Challenger tragedy. But now the anonymous commentator also claimed that, you know, they worked on a series of Marvel productions at the time, and there were actually 13 episodes actually made, and only one aired. Now, according to other sources, they claim to have seen the lone aired episode and provided just basically a loose description of like a young boy accidentally set into space, you know, and basically fit the character that was in the ad. Uh, I mean, it is possible that, you know, at least this episode could have been recorded by someone, anyone. Nobody has a copy of this in the YouTube era. Absolutely impossible. I, I highly doubt that this actually existed, but... Proof of its existence comes from an animation cell that was attributed to the young astronauts. It surfaced in a private collector's gallery. Now, the character looks like the young astronaut that was pictured in the cartoon, and it fits the theme of what the cartoon was. So they have this one single animation cell that they claim is from this. Now, if it indeed comes, you know, if it did come from the animated series, then it would be confirmed that, you know, the animation was done by Toei an animation department, which did work with Marvel production at the time, and they did, you know, many Western cartoons, mm-hmm. you know, especially serialized, serial TV one. They did animated in Japan during the 80s as well. But according to one online comment, an anonymous user claimed that they discovered that someone who worked on Young Astronauts uploaded several of the Astro Minute segments, and it was a segment that was built into the show, to YouTube, in 2013. Now, most of the huh. apparently these are all removed from the site, of course, so there's no actual, you know, evidence. Yeah. evidence of this happening. But after much searching, you know, that user located one of the segments on Vimo called Astro Minute Zero Gravity. And of course, I don't know if that still exists. I don't know if that's something we can look up. But uh, several sources that describe it as being produced by Marvel Productions. Now, on to the mysterious Marvel Young Astronauts comic book that I also know, also had no idea it existed. I'm a big Star Comics fan. I've said it over mm-hmm. and over and over. And, of course, there was an ad that came out for Young Astronauts. says, Space is now. You know, come to the mothership courageous and join the new dramatic adventures of the Young Astronauts. New from Star Comics by Denny O'Neill, June Bergman, and <gasps> Pat Redding. Now, it's supposed to be based... Yeah, it's supposed to be based on the hit TV series from Marvel that didn't exist. Now, if you're <laughs> saying, if you say to me, Chris, I don't have any issues of young astronauts. Well, Chris, there's a good reason you don't. <laughs> <laughs> because just like the cartoon, the comic book doesn't exist. So Marvel were contracted to publish a minimum of six issues mm-hmm. of young astronauts. Now, obviously based on the property, but with no TV show to tie into There were delays, and then, of course, the cancellation. However, despite being previewed in Marvel Age, now this is in, it was actually previewed in Marvel Age issue 37, and I've included those. I'll pop those up on Twitter a little bit later. So it actually, you know, that's all that actually exists of the Young Astronauts line, believe it or not. Marvel Age issue 37 is the literally the only real existence or look of the Young Astronauts line that we get. It's the first time we actually get to see the characters outright. And, you know, it was actually based on, you know, the elusive pilot. I think we need to know what happened here. But uh, anyway, the licensing deal, to make a long story short, the licensing deal broke down and it ended up in a lawsuit over unpaid monies. Now, listen to this. Marvel actually won the lawsuit and grabbed $185,547 and 
40 cents. That's plus interest, of course, of 9%. And another 75,000 from a previous ruling in 1990. So even though this cartoon that was supposed to exist doesn't exist, and a comic book of its name was, you know, six issues were supposed to be created, that didn't sure. exist either. Marvel made $185,547.40 off something that didn't exist. So there you go, Pat Redding, you lying fudge. <laughs> Oh, I'll say that. Yeah. That's amazing. Truth. Wow. Truth. That's incredible. It is. <laughs> <laughs> Kathy Lee Gifford was, or Kathy Lee Crosby, I should oh, say, the was, other the, one. Other, uh, was yeah. the other host. Yeah, there you go. There okay. you go. Now, that. that's your history okay. lesson. That's one to grow on, kids. That is very interesting stuff. I, I love stuff like that because it's, it, it's like, you know, look, looking at the images here, looking at the, uh, the ad, the Hogan ad with the young astronauts in it. I could swear I saw this show, and I know Me I too. didn't. You Me know, too. it's just it fits just the gestalt of what you'd expect from a Saturday morning lineup uh, program uh, at that time, and uh, and hearing all this stuff about it is just amazing. It's just weird stuff, and I, we'll also we'll we'll get all these images up on the uh, on the site tomorrow as well, or to, today. <laughs> yes, <laughs> well. that's right. You're as you're Monday, listening to right this right now today yes. on Monday. <laughs> As you're listening okay. to this, they're up there. Um, yeah, that's that's some wild stuff. I love it. Um, where where were you when the uh, the Challenger uh, uh, happened? Oh, I was, do you remember? Uh, let's see, let me. When was that? It was what month? 1986, January. January. Oh, definitely. Uh, that was in school, actually. Did you watch oh. it in school? I we heard about it in school, and there was a whole thing about it. It came over the PA system that there was a tragedy. And uh, there was, and that's all I really recall about it. And when I got home, and it was all over the news, and my parents mm. were, you know, you know, wrapped around the TV, wondering what happened. And you know, my dad was like, "Oh, not a good thing happened." You know, the uh, the spaceship blew up, and I'm like, "What do you mean the spaceship blew up?" And they had footage of it, and I was like, "Oh my yeah. god, that's like that'll haunt you for years. That that was the worst thing ever to see that play out on live TV." Yeah, I'm, I could swear that we actually watched it in school. Um, I don't know if that had actually happened, but I, I could, like, I could actually see my, and then again, I also saw a few things that didn't happen in this comic, but, uh, <laughs> I could see it's myself. Our head cannon, in, Chris. It is, it is. It's our, uh, it's our, it's our old friend, uh, Mandela, uh, playing with us here. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I was in first grade and, uh, I could swear we watched it and we saw it happen. And, uh, I don't think any of us really understood the gravity of the situation, but, uh, that's yeah, some wild stuff. Wild Crazy. stuff. But uh, back to uh, our friend Pat. Current freelance work. Nothing. But she's open to anything. <laughs> um, hobbies. She plays guitar and has a band called The Thugs. And uh, more of her hobbies she will choose not to discuss here for whatever reason. She's like, none of your business. It's like you're, you're having an interview. You know? To, uh, yeah, this is... And pre-planned, this is written, so, I mean, it's not like she's getting interviewed live and they're typing this on the screen. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> you know what I mean? What is this? Now, the work she's most proud of is creating the uh, the stage backdrop for The Thugs. Um, <laughs> okay. Really into the comics, yeah. Uh, pet peeves, people who don't pay attention <laughs> to things that matter. Uh, born in wow. Washington, D.C., uh, now, greatest non-comics accomplishment is to be decided individually by others. 
Wow. Very deep. This is this is the worst. Like she's not answering anything. What's well, the point? Well, you want to know what her oddest habit is? What's her oddest habit? Too bad she ain't telling. None of your business. Oh man, what a waste of page space here. Yeah. Wow, wow. Who would play her in a movie? Tora Satana, a Japanese actress. Sure, why not? Why did Pat Redding choose comics? Because Larry Hama asked her to, and she said, why not? <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, we were, you know, I think up until now, Larry Hama was the worst profile we've ever covered. And uh, we <laughs> suddenly Boy, we have a contender. The, man, the uh, the student has become the teacher here. Yes. <laughs> People in high school thought that Pat was never going to be a good golfer. Well. Yeah, goes goes with goes with the flow, I think here. Yes, favorite performers: Elvis impersonators, all of them. Uh, Tesco V, I don't know who that is. Handsome Dick Manitoba, I don't know who that is. <laughs> wow, that sounds like a Canadian porn star or something. It does, doesn't it? And yes. then uh, the Beast from the East, Bam Bam Bigelow. Oh boy, I'll, I'll give her credit. She liked Bam Bam back in the day. Yeah, yeah. This is 88, headed into Survivor Series with Oliver Humperdinck era. I was going to say, he's still with Oliver Humperdinck. (laughs) Oliver Humperdinck! (laughs) Now, uh, let's see here. I actually am looking up Handsome Dick Manitoba here. Uh, Richard Handsome Dick Manitoba, born Richard Bloom, is an American punk rock singer and radio personality, best known as the lead singer for the New York City band The Dictators. Ah, there you go. She likes crappy music, too, on top of everything crappy else she likes. <laughs> yeah, they made their debut in uh, Sheepshead Bay, which is also where my father made his actual debut. He was he was born in Sheepshead Bay, or he grew up oh, in goodness. Sheepshead Bay. Well, but, uh, there you go. Um, where were we? Last good book she did or didn't read was The Killer Inside Me by Jim Thompson. And it's it's funny because I want to basically kill myself after reading his profile, so it all it just works out. Now this was a crime novel from 1952, originally published by Fawcett Publications, the uh, Captain Marvel people. Wow, look at yeah. you! Now the last good movie she saw was Ironweed, which was a uh, 1988 drama featuring um, Meryl Streep and Jack Nicholson. Have you ever seen that? I can honestly say I've never seen that. Never even. And heard I've of seen it. I've seen a lot of Jack Nicholson, but not Ironweed. Not I think Iron it's the name. It's just not appealing. When you're looking through a list of movies and you see Ironweed, you just keep going, don't you? You do. You do. Uh, biggest influences? Well, first and foremost, Larry Hammer. That'll get uh, you far. Also, yeah, also Wally Wood, Noel Sickles, Milt Caniff, Frank Frazetta, Alex Toth, uh-huh. Michael Golden, and Bob Camp. Okay, so, you know, the the last part of it there came in good there with Frazetta sure. and Toth and Golden. I mean, nothing wrong with those artists. No, no, no there is a, uh, you know, shocking uh, missing of uh, Stan Lee, right? Uh, no <laughs> I like that for, uh, this Larry Hammond on there as well, because this lady is not long for employment with this company, according to this. <laughs> wow. No. Greatest unfulfilled ambition is not to be taken for granted. Hmm. So uh, it sounds like she's already got a chip, chip on her shoulder. Huh? I, I, don't, I don't think anyone's going to take her for granted because I don't think the expectation is too far ahead here <laughs> reading this profile. <laughs> I think you get exactly what you think with this lady. Wow. Uh, 
The worst part of the job is that she's not officially a full-fledged editor. <laughs> no shit. <laughs> you can't make this up. Uh, when nobody's looking, Pat looks at them. <laughs> um, With that creepy image they got of her as well, man. It is that so is scary. Bizarre. It is like, very unpleasant. It's your worst nightmare in, like, one <laughs> image. It's it's like, like Aeon Flux, but, like, not. Ah, <laughs> oh, man. Really yeah. rough. Man, like, I know everybody, you know, sometimes people are self-conscious and, you know, people have traits that they don't like about themselves. But if I say, if someone was doing a character of me and that's what <laughs> came out, I would reevaluate my entire life after that, I think. Holy cow, that's <laughs> nasty. <laughs> The people need to know about her is that she's a champ speller and a grammarian with a pragmatic vocabulary. <laughs> Perfect. So you couldn't you couldn't take some time and write a good script for your own profile? That's all you right. gave them? Nope. Nope. Oh, how bad is none, that? None your business. <laughs> none your business. Uh, but that is it for uh, for Pat Redding. And uh, I would go on to the Mighty Marvel checklist, but there is Perfect. What one. do we got? There isn't one. Yeah, none. Nothing. Nada. Um, Yeah, I I guess they don't care if they sell stuff anymore. But uh, (laughs) we also have advertisements. All right. Daddy likes some ads. And and it's actually like a whole slew of new ones. You know, sometimes we get some repeated repeaters here, but this is like almost all new. Uh, We got the first one here is Jolly Rancher Sticks with an X. Jeez, I... Actually, I've I've never had them. Now, I like Jolly Ranchers like the next person, but, you know, I, I'm not big on, like, the hard candy thing, you know what I mean? They're they're fine, but they're just not my thing, you know. They made soft Jolly Ranchers lately, like, very recently, and but okay. you think I would have loved those, but I'm just, I'm just they're not, not great. in love with them. No. Yeah. Now, as far as this ad goes, you know, this ad company should be fired on site. Oh, my <laughs> God, I've never seen a less ambitious ad campaign, you know. It just looks, unless you're looking like deeply into the ad, you're not, you're going to miss what they're selling. There's no big logo. There's no words. The only thing that it got going for him is it got an illustration from mad, you know, mad magazines, Don Martin. And it's got this very, very small nondescript picture of the product underneath. I mean, seriously, can you get any more unappealing? Does that make you want to buy Jolly Rancher sticks or even know that this ad is a Jolly Rancher stick ad? Mm-hmm. No, it's not a good ad at all. It's a, a lot of empty space there. Like it's it's it's, it's like a white. last yeah thing. yeah yeah oh, it's man. pretty bad. And I actually uh, I had Jolly Jolly Ranchers sticks back in the day, and uh, they are uh, they're they're kind of long, um, and they're it's like a bar of hard candy. So oh. you know the regular Jolly Ranchers, they're small. You pop them in your mouth, you forget about them, they go away. You know they. they they dissolve. They yeah. you chew on them, whatever. These sticks, though, it's like I, I have a problem. I, I have a problem with wrappers. I don't like like if I eat a candy bar, I take the candy bar out of the wrapper. I don't just fold the wrapper down like a lot of people do because the sound oh, yeah, of the crinkling. Yeah, it's gross. Oh, I, I, I just ruins the experience for me. So if I'm gonna have a Jolly Rancher stick, I have to take the entire wrapper off, which means my <laughs> hands are gonna get very very sticky. <laughs> And I mean, you could you could suck on this thing for like an hour. And, and you could actually, what do you, you do with like, it after? That's disgusting. You swallow, I guess. I, I don't know, but I mean, <laughs> but it's like you're gonna get to the point where your fingers were, and it's gonna be salty. 
because you sweated on it. Oh, um, no. You can actually, like, people used to, like, eat these things and, like, form them down to, like, a shiv almost. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I can see that. <laughs> of course but, they would. But it, it's, uh, yeah, it's not a pleasant experience. If you're going to have Jolly Ranchers, if you need to have Jolly Ranchers, just go with the little ones. Um, Man, do they even have sticks anymore? They don't. That, that's a guy. I don't that's think a, so. That's a Maybe lost like game, a. Yeah, maybe like a vintage candy store you might find them. Um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, not my favorite. And they always, Jolly Ranchers always tasted diet to me. Big like, time. Like they, they held back on the sweetness or something. Yes. Like you put them in, you really had to suck on them really good to get some flavor out of those things. Mm-hmm. And they were hard candy. I mean, yep. hard candy is just not for me, man. I, I want some like... I want to be able to chew it. I want to be able to enjoy the taste and texture of the candy. It's supposed to be rubbery and jelly-like, but not these hard <laughs> things. That's, I don't know. Are you yeah, a Werther's this... fan? Are you like a Werther's original candy fan? Uh, since I've cut out sugar, uh, Werther's is like one of the only ones that does a sugar-free uh, thing. So, yes. Oh, look at you. <laughs> oh, you're, you're the old man in the chair getting giving the Werther's to the kid. Yep, waiting for my grandkids to come over, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I... I the uh, the Jolly Ranchers they're like loaded with sugar and uh, and they don't they they taste very very artificial. Um, it's kind of like going from like a regular Coke to a Diet Coke, and oh. it's uh it's not pleasant. <laughs> but I I've been I've been binging on um Tic Tacs lately. Oh, uh, they're delicious, especially the oh orange God. ones. Orange oh, Tic Tacs. Oh, you are not <laughs> joking. They you are. You know what? I I damn the packaging because have you heard that the packaging. Now this is a, this is a uh, a little tip. Do you know that the packaging dispenser was supposed to be the way it's supposed it's, to hold one, one. Yeah. So you're supposed to hit it My and ass. one is supposed to depends. Well, no why way. is it that all of the orange candy end up in the palm of my hand and I eat them all at once? Why is that, Chris? Obviously, it's flaw in the design. I did the you know I did the same thing uh, almost every night this week because uh, they have so so little sh- they say negligible sugar or something like that so it's like okay I can have that but uh yeah the orange ones are are just oh, oh god like package is not big enough like I can go through several oh, packages yeah. of those and they're just so so delicious yeah because they, they they come in like two hundred packs now like two hundred mint things now and Perfect. they're gone in an evening they're gone they, in an they, evening. They listen to me. <laughs> yeah, and I, I will eat them in a sitting. Um, I remember growing up, the uh, the orange soda at McDonald's tasted like orange Tic Tacs. Oh hell yes, oh. it did. And, and I could never find it again. I can never find. Now it's like high C. It's like where's the orange soda? Oh no 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 no. High C high C is definitely not original orange soda. I'll tell you that. Goodness. But, high C uh, tries to put that splash of juice in there. Get away from me. Yeah. <laughs> I I've been uh, having like the world's saddest cocktail with uh with Tic Tacs lately um because they have uh they have a Coca Cola flavor now. I, oh I don't yeah know yeah I, I don't know if it's like a temporary thing, but uh I've been actual Coca Cola flavor. I've seen oh, the like the yeah. dispenser with Coca Cola on. I didn't know it was cola flavored. It is, dude. Oh man, and it tastes really really good. So I will I will mix two hundred of those with two hundred orange. Oh. Shake them up. And I will have my orange Coke. Uh, that that was when I was uh, because uh, you you have those uh those freestyle machines up by you those Coke freestyle machines or the soda freestyle things. What's a, what's a freestyle machine? It's we don't have like, it obviously. Okay, I I discovered this, and I mean they're they've they've you know been they've wide been widespread since, but uh, back 
probably in like 2011, um, there was like one Wendy's across town, like like 45 minutes away from my house, that had something called a freestyle machine, and I had no idea what this thing was. And it, you go, and it's not like a regular soda fountain dispenser where you like you push against that metal thing and whatever flavor comes out. It's got like a monitor, and you mix flavors on it. Oh God, yes. Oh yes. Yeah. Subways okay. here in Canada are, okay, have good. all those. Yes, and it's really good because I always make concoctions, oh, yeah. weird, weird flavors of Dr. Pepper. I'm a huge Dr. Pepper fan, so I mess around, you know, doing uh, cherry Dr. Pepper, and I mix it up with the, all the different varieties. I just jam that thing in. I love it. Whoa. Because what I got hooked on was orange Coke. And, Yummy. Uh, oh, Yummy. Man. I, I would I would vacillate between orange Coke and vanilla ginger ale. Oh, <laughs> back when I used to drink soda. Uh, but yeah, that you was were a, a freestyle cocktologist, sir. I'll I was. That. <laughs> I was. Yes. But uh, yeah, so I've been reliving that with my my Tic Tac pinches, the man. saddest cocktail in the world. Oh, no, that's beautiful, sir. <laughs> now, we have another ad, and this is a very interesting one. <sighs> very interesting one. Do your research on this one, people. Oh, Tell yeah. them what it is. This is uh, an ad for Info Comics, specifically The Adventures of Lane Mastodon. Oh, these were an insane waste of money. I mean, I researched them, and they're literally yeah. video game cutscenes and very, very, very underwhelming ones, especially slow. for 1988 standards. Yeah. When I say slow, it doesn't even do it justice. I mean, yeah. these comics from Apple were rudimentary when i say extremely basic i mean picture just a basic outline of a head wireframe yeah yeah literally a wireframe and they are so slow loading each panel they feature like these bleep and bloop sound effects like when something blows up it goes bleep bloop bleep bloop that's literally all the sound effects you get each panel uh you know has a text box that makes it seem like the person is talking but nothing moves you might get one animated thing that like just goes in one direction in in the frame. Mm-hmm. It is the worst. The frames are still, but somehow they had these pan and zoom effects where you could zoom in and zoom out, so it makes it look like it's moving when you're really doing nothing. Like uh, it came out in 1988, but these are some of the worst things ever. They were supposed to be the the beginnings of you know the digital comic the experience. Next big you, thing, yeah. yeah. You think about motion comics. This is like the very 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 basic foundation of motion comics and they are just painful to watch there you can find those on uh, on youtube so just check out like the adventures of uh of lane mastodon info comics on youtube and oh there's yeah several several on yeah. there and they're they're brutal yeah we're gonna have some embedded on the uh, on the site uh, oh, yes. as you're listening to this there are some on the site right now uh, <laughs> um yeah these came out uh, for twelve dollars each um and our man Lane here says uh, you get a lot of you get a lot for your money. You can watch each one for hours. Literally, literally, because it's so damn slow. Yeah, yeah the <laughs> maybe yeah, decades. The, oh boy, the video, the the first video we got uh, on the site is uh, I think it was like fifty nine minutes. So uh, you you'll probably make it through the first three minutes, <laughs> and you'll be done with it. It's enough. it's uh. Yeah, it's it's some crazy stuff here. It's just such an interesting sign of the times. I, I'd actually love to come across. I, mean, I don't have a system that I could run the damn thing on, but I'd love to just have oh. a Lane Mastodon. You talk, you talk about collectors' items and Lane Mastodon. What a oh, name! Boy. 
Oh boy, and he kind of looks like like a little bit like Booster Gold, <laughs> sort of without the visor, like, like old Flash Gordon comics or something. Yes. That's what he looks like. I don't know. He does. He anyway. does. Now uh, what we else have, we got? We've got ads for Marvel's Evolutionary War. Probably the best ad you'll ever see for it, to be quite honest with you. This is a very good looking ad. It is for a horse crap event. Awful. <laughs> now, oh. I don't know about you, but I love these Marvel crossover events. I was a huge crossover guy, man. Secret mm-hmm. Wars and Crisis on Infinite Earths. I mean, all these things where I just love this stuff. Legends and all those things that were coming out. And so Marvel came out with Evolutionary War, and it was going to be done through their annuals. So instead mm-hmm. of being in their main titles, they decided that the year end, everybody would have you know a crossover event called the Evolutionary War. And, of course, you had the High Evolutionary and uh, he was going to do some selective, um, uh, what would you call it? Thing. Yeah, pop- population control via the yeah. evolutionary, uh, the high evolutionary, we'll call it. But the so just to be make a long story short, the evolutionary war is crap. It is a garbage. horrible, horrible garbage, garbage crossover. It's disjointed. It makes no sense. But the one thing that I do love about it and that I respect that it debuted Steve Ditko's next big thing, Speedball. Now, you know, <laughs> anyone who knows about Speedball, he was never meant to be anything. This was just nothing but a favor that Tom DeFalco did to appease Ditko, who was basically at this time just doing ads for newspapers, coloring mm-hmm. books, and whatever he could find. And he had just come off a glorious run on Star Comics doing Chuck Norris Karate Commandos. <laughs> you know what's funny? <laughs> uh, doing research for this, I noticed that graded comics of of Chuck Norris, especially <laughs> issues two to four, because there was only four issues, they range about 65 bucks each. Oh, geez. And issue one is fairly hard to find graded. Like, I, wow. I guess people use it as toilet paper like you should, but... Uh, <laughs> But it's the most, it's the least accessible out of the entire lot in high grade. It's really, really weird. But anyway, wow, I remember those coming in like those three dollar bags as well. So, but anyway, mm-hmm. long story short, Evolutionary War it was just a disjointed mess. It didn't flow into the main titles, thank God. That would have been a complete <laughs> tragedy overall. But it just <laughs> felt like a almost non-canon, like it didn't mean anything. And I mean. Yeah. For, uh, the High Evolutionary, even though he looked pretty cool, I love that guy's design, but, I mean, he was a pretty weak oh, villain yeah. with just this worthless agenda, too. It was just just a miss all the way around the board and really soured me on crossovers, but anyway. Yeah, because I, I came into the crossovers through uh, the trading cards, yeah. and uh, that built them up as being so much more than they actually were. Like, you'd be <laughs> like, you know, uh, the event, Evolutionary War, Atlantis Attacks, you know? Oh, all these... oh that was another one. I couldn't stand that either. But it yeah. was better to hi- better than Evolutionary War. Yeah, well, yeah, for sure. Um, and I remember, like, finally getting my hands on some of these, you know, these coveted events and being like, what? <laughs> Why? <laughs> Not not my favorite stuff. Um, nope. I, yeah, it's uh, not, not great. Um, we have an ad for America's Heroes official medallions. Oh, this is like a... Like a collectible a, coins or something. Yeah. This is like a, a facet of collecting that I'm not into whatsoever. It's like stamps, man. Like a, just something mm. that I'm not into. But, you know, you think you look at these coins. So they came with four. They came with, you know, your your basic high-end Marvel superheroes on them. And they came in what's called 24 
carat gold plated bronze. <laughs> now, what does that <laughs> Whatever mean? Whatever that is. <laughs> 24 carat gold plated bronze. Wait a second. These were available, of course, in bronze, gold bronze, and silver, and they range from five bucks all the way up to nineteen dollars per coin. Now that's big money back then, folks. I'll tell you that. Sure. But you know, it's just something I never understood, man. The coin collectible market is is not like comics or or cards. It's just something different about it. I didn't know what to do with it. I don't know what to do yeah. with a collectible coin. I don't know how to display it. I don't want it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Outside this of like, feels... I'm a comic book fan. Yeah. Yeah, this feels kind of like it would be aimed at like the grandmother who has a exactly. grandkid who is into comics, or or like the the person who is uh like watching the Home Shopping Club. You so, got it. Yes, it's it's. it's you know, t- I'll tell you what. If my grandparents gave me this as a gift, it would make sense. You'd be like, yeah, sure. yeah, that's a, that's a pretty cool um, gift. Yeah, I'm the comic like. guy. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But, but like, uh, I like. I like comic books. I like books. I like movies. That's the type of things that I would collect. The odd time I would grab something like a Franklin Mint exclusive, like a Star Trek plate or like a a chess set, but never a coin. Mm. Same with stamps. It just, like Shania Twain says, it just don't impress me much, man. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, because I, I, you know, back to Elvis. He had a lot of plates. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Yes, you're damn right. Those Elvis collector plates. That, that was one of those. That, that was another, you know, facet of collectability that that eluded me. I didn't, and and you would see so that cool. sort of thing on the Home Shopping Club all the time. Man, I would snap those plates up in a hurry now. I tell you that, <laughs> I would. Well, because he, he's going to return soon, so we want to we want to make sure he's got something to eat off of, right? Him and Jesus, we don't know who's coming first. And Tupac. Uh, um, and Tupac. <laughs> Very important. Now our final ad is for a video game, and it's a pretty crappy one. Uh, This is... (laughs) Shut your mouth, false prophet. (laughs) This is Wizards and Warriors for the Nintendo Entertainment System. I will tell you this. So I proudly (laughs) bought this with my own money that I made working as mall slash security. And, buddy, I was heavy on the slash part of that particular job because (laughs) I cleaned windows, toilets, changed garbage, lottery boots. I did all that stuff. Never once did I bust any villains like I had dreamed (laughs) when I first got the job. But it gave me enough money to go and buy Wizards and Warriors. Or, yeah, Wizards and Warriors. Yep. I mean... The controls for the game were absolute trash. They were terrible. You'd think that it would be just like a side-scrolling hack and slash. No, sir. The controls were all over the place. Like, I will say this, though. There were slopes everywhere, I remember. Like, you'd jump, and you'd catch yourself on a slope, and you would slide. This was a jumping game. It was all about jumping from tree to tree, pedestal to pedestal, like platform to platform. That's basically what this game was. You You think with the cover which has like uh, almost like a Conan character hacking and slashing at some stuff. Like it looks like a basic sword and sorcery. Nope. Yeah. This was like a very kitty cartoony uh, knight. Yeah. yeah. There was a cartoony knight who slipped and slide all over the place. And I will say this though, for this game, I beat that game. I, I sat down and I was determined. I was not putting this game down because I had spent so much money on it that mm. I was going to finish this. And I defeated it without any codes or any game genie. So uh, th- wow. there you go, mon frere. And, of course, the sequel was uh, fared no better. So there you go. That one had Fabio on the cover. <laughs> oh, yes, it did. Yeah. Designed to hold your hair any style. <laughs> <laughs> For a game that, I mean, there's no wizards on this cover. 
There's no I don't think there's any Conan. wizards in the game. It's like a Conan uh, game. They said, "Ah, uh, we we don't have any uh, we don't have any art for the cover of the uh, the game box. Here, here's the Conan video game box. Here, put that on there." Oh boy, yeah. I just remember playing it for a bit, and uh, I, the jumping was just for a game that was so heavily yep. reliant on jumping. The jumping controls sucked. Oh, they were bad. You you, you felt like you weren't in control. Like the oh, character slid and slipped floaty. all over the place. Mm-hmm. It's, but, it uh, felt like gravity was leaning against you every time you pushed time. forward. Big time. Yeah, not 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 the most pleasant experience. But uh, that is Strike Force Moratory, issue number 20, cover to cover. So, uh, all right. Bittersweet. Bittersweet in that uh, it was a wonderful issue, but it is uh, probably the last wonderful issue. Um, uh, maybe we shouldn't be so negative. Uh, there's a possibility that we'll get to just as much pleasure. Um, maybe not in the same way, but uh, maybe we'll get something out of these next uh, next 12. Uh, or maybe even if we find that we enjoy maybe two or three of them, we'll, we'll come out ahead of the game. But uh, before we uh, jam out, uh, you want to uh, do some plug-in. Well, sure. I'm currently on holidays, so you can find me all day, all night on the Twitter. <laughs> so if you want to talk to me this week, you can hit me up at, at Charlton underscore hero on the Twitter machine. Uh, I'm going to be popping up some stuff because I, I'm finishing. I'm on the tail end of my uh, great, great storage room cleanout, And boy, have I found some stuff to pop up on Twitter. So look for that and look for some of the, all these things that you've seen here on Strikeforce Moratory and Moratory Mondays. Here this week up on the uh, where you putting that on the blog site is that what you're doing? Yeah, it's gonna be uh, it's gonna be on the same feed as always, but uh, we're gonna do uh, a little little something different and put it up also on Chris'sOnInfiniteEarths.com just as a uh, as kind of a touchstone for it. Uh, like a I'm, I'm I'm in a consolidation effort right now, trying to make sure everything's in order. I love it, and I think very very soon we're gonna see some. Claremont to Claremont coming back and who knows what we got in store there Chris I can't wait absolutely we are going to be taking uh, the month off from Claremont to Claremont this is Strikeforce Moratorium number 20 is actually the first comic book I read in uh, several weeks now um, just really haven't been feeling like reading comics so uh, read it today read it well yesterday actually um, but uh, or two days ago if you're listening on Monday but uh <laughs> This was a good one to come back to. Very good Definitely, one to come back man. to. Um, the uh, Claremont show will be taking uh, June off. We'll bring it back uh, July and uh, hopefully continue the moratorium train um, as we uh, as we do every Monday uh, from this point on. There might be other stuff popping in uh, every Sunday for the next many Sundays. There will be some formerly uh, Patreon exclusive content featuring Reggie and myself. All that right. will be uh, put, uh, you know, that that was uh, that was our time Sunday Sunday morning. So uh, there'll be there'll be more Chris and Reggie Sundays for you uh, over the next several months. Um, I uh, think that's probably about it, um, unless you got anything else for them. Well, number one, I'd just like to say a, um, my sympathies to you, sir, for the loss of your partner, and mm-hmm. I know that. Uh, know that you had a uh, a couple a uh, couple big weeks we'll say and uh, i just want to let you know yeah. man that uh we're here and the the podcast community and the blogging community are here and uh man there's we got nothing but uh great memories of reggie and uh, of course the work that you guys did together so uh i'd just like to say Absolutely. a big thank you to you and a big thank you to uh to reggie and my man uh rest in peace you won't be forgotten in this community sir awesome absolutely absolutely 
but uh, I think that's uh, that's all we've got. Um, and uh, we will uh, see you next time and uh, talk to you again real soon. See ya.